When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise in the news cycle, get the information we need to better discern the times we live in. Thank you so much. However you're listening and or watching, we sure do appreciate it. A couple of things we're going to cover on the show today. We're going to touch in on the Ukraine-Russia war. Hadn't talked about that in a little while. Kind of update that. Uh, a great story to end the program. We always try to end on a good note when we have time. We take a lot of time to go over a wonderful story that touches on um, a family that's grieving and vocational education and how those two things came together. I love this story. Can't wait to share it with you at the end of the program. Dennis Saunders, one of my favorite guests, good friend, somebody I like to talk about big picture stuff with. We're going to get into things like hope, how you got to have hope to have proper perspective on things like politics and culture and how a lot of what's going on in politics and culture is because folks are losing hope and replacing it with politics and things like this and what that does. So we're going to talk about that David Brooks piece that got a lot of attention. Also going to talk about some societal things like race, like politics, like culture. Dennis Saunders on the program today. Thrilled to have our friend back. Long, in-depth conversation. Don't miss that. But I want to open the program with um, something that's a little, what's the term the kids use? Meta? We recorded uh, the program from yesterday. You can go back and listen to it on all the iTunes and the Substack, herdtel.substack.com. We did uh, over there news like we've been doing, a little rundown segment where we go across a couple different countries and headlines of what's going on. One of the ones we touched on was Ecuador. And we recorded that and did it about the violence in Ecuador and the coming presidential election. The mayor of Manta had been assassinated. There had been other violence. There's a lot of economic problems. It's a contentious election. Well, right after we recorded that and got it sent off and got it ready to go, situation got worse. Let's go to New York Times. Uh, Fernando Villavencio was gunned down at a rally on Wednesday, had a long history in Ecuadorian public affairs, largely as an antagonist against those in power. He was a union leader, a muckraking journalist, a legislator, and was a presidential candidate for the upcoming election. And now he's an assassin's victim. I'm reading from the New York Times. 
He rose to prominence as a union leader at the state oil company Petro Ecuador and later played a crucial role in exposing a corruption scandal involving the administration of the former president Rafael Correa. Correa, a socialist, was Ecuador's longest-serving democratically elected president, leaving, leading the nation for a decade through 2017. A commodity boom helped him lift millions out of poverty, but his authoritarian style and corruption allegations trailed him deeply divided into the country. And as Mr. Villavinciao, I'm still saying that wrong, I apologize, was always contesting the power of Mr. Correa, according to Carolina Avila, an Ecuadorian political analysis. He was assassinated right after we covered this story. This is part of the blessing and the curse of this medium. We record these shows because we have to get them in and get them edited, and then we have to get them out to the platforms. So this broke after we had already covered the topic. But it also shows why we cover things like this. We were a little bit ahead of this one. We obviously didn't know there was going to be assassination, but we knew things in that country were deteriorating and were bad and needed to be paid attention to. So why does an assassinated candidate in Ecuador matter to you if you're in America or England or India where we have an audience or anywhere else around the world? Well, because all the things that led to this have applicable principles to where you are. There's economic unrest. There's political corruption. There's people who were brought out of poverty by an economic boom and put back into poverty when the economy collapsed. There's a lack of news coverage. There's a huge expat population, especially in Manta, where the mayor was assassinated. That's a popular expat uh, destination because Ecuador used the U.S. dollar for decades as its main currency. These are all universal themes that can apply here. But people say, well, that won't happen here. We've had multiple presidents assassinated. We've had other notable figures like Robert F. Kennedy, also assassinated. Martin Luther King assassinated. Political assassinations. You don't think it can happen here? You don't think discord and economic trouble or political trouble or the way that we're trending in our politics where it's more and more vitriol and the kookier fringes get squeezed more and more to the edges tend to get more and more violent and vitriolic? You don't think these things can happen here? That's why we cover them. That's why we do what we do on this program. We don't just chase the viral thing or the partisan thing or the headline. We look for things that have applicable meaning, teachable moments, universal applications. So, yeah, a dead politician in Ecuador may not directly affect your life. But that was still a life. And those people aren't that different from us if we're really honest about it. And if we aren't very defensive and protective of this wonderful country that we have in America, this greatest experiment in the history of the world in a people trying to self-govern. This stuff can happen here. This story happened right after we'd already covered it, and the story got worse. But this is an example of what we try to do that's different on this program, one of the reasons we started doing it. If you stick to big themes, universal principles, teachable moments, you become timely in what you're covering and paying attention to, not time sensitive, not trapped in a moment like we talk with our guest Dennis Saunders today. Because when you get trapped in the moment, you lose your perspective. Covering things in a big picture way, having a global acknowledgement of what's going on while still being focused on what you can do in your own homes and communities and country gives you that perspective. Unfortunately, in Ecuador, it's a perspective of something bad but we can also use it to find perspective of things good. 
So I just wanted to open today's program talking for a minute about why we do what we do and how we do it, because this is a good example of it. We covered that story briefly, and then it changed almost immediately after it came out of our mouths, through the microphone, into the computer, and through the power of the internet and podcasting and whatever platform you're listening to this came to your ears. That's how the world works now, and we need to take advantage of that to try to do some good here. And we hope you'll join us as we continue to try to do that. More Hertel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Herd Tell. One quick item I want to touch on the war in Ukraine. We've covered this since the beginning. Russia invaded Ukraine, had no call to do so, and has uh, perpetrated atrocities on the Ukrainian people ever since. This war can end whenever Russia and Vladimir Putin wanted to by stop invading Ukraine and get out. They're not going to do that. There's a lot of talk in the media and the news narratives and the headlines about this counteroffensive and what it's accomplishing. It's not accomplishing a lot. It's grinding it's not doing super well. It's not a total failure, but it is not what a lot of folks, especially on the Ukrainian side, thought it was going to be. Let's just big picture. There's a reason for this. War is not static. This summer's war is not last summer's war or last winter's war or the initial invasion. The initial invasion of Ukraine and especially the year or so that followed it exposed a lot of problems with the Russian military. They absolutely suck at logistics. They've sucked at it for years. They don't prioritize it. And that really told in a lot of what happened in the early part of this war. Their logistics are terrible. Their command and control is not great. Um, Ukraine was able to exploit that pretty easily in a lot of ways. Their NCO level leadership is not good in the Russian army. We found that out because they keep getting really high level commanders killed on the front lines. Why is that? Because the high-level commanders and officers had to take frontline positions that in other militaries, especially Western militaries, positions that are held by NCOs and junior officers. The Russian military does not have that cadre of NCOs and junior-level officers that they trust with that. They put uh, higher-ranked officers in the field on the front lines, and that's why you saw that high kill rate and casualty rate among them. Those were all weaknesses that were exposed by trying to invade and drive into and sustain an occupation in a foreign country, Ukraine. This counteroffensive is different. Now, Ukrainians are having to play into the strengths of the Russian military. Defensive warfare, while their logistics are terrible, they're sappers, they're combat engineers. They are excellent. They are as good as anybody in the world at stuff like that. They can make your life miserable, and they are for the Ukrainians. And they've also had to deal with now attrition. 
the Russian army just has a whole lot more people. If it turns into a grind fest, the Russian army can do that a lot longer than the Ukrainians can. Now, overall, the political picture is that if this grinds down, then Ukraine's allies and their lifeline in the West that is supplying them arms and munition and funding starts getting bored and starts pulling out that funding because they don't want this to go on and on. But don't be fooled. There's not going to be an outside intervention here that stops this. This is a fight to the death. They invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's not going to give it back. This is going to go on for a long, long time. And we need to understand that. But understand the context of what you're seeing in the headlines right now. Ukraine is fighting a different war right now. And the war they are fighting is much more favorable to the Russian army than when they were getting all the gains and winning all the victories last summer. Just the way it is. Everybody will adjust. The war this fall and this winter won't look like this either. You got to stay on top of this stuff and make sure you don't just get stuck in the old narrative that doesn't apply to the new situation. We'll continue to cover it. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. One of my favorite guests we have because I love talking big picture stuff <laughs> that all starts with the very simple thing of what you yourself believe. God forbid we talk about that sort of thing. He's a great writer. He's also a pastor up in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. Dennis Saunders, great to have you back on the program, sir. How are you? It's good to be back. It has been a while. It's been way too long, my friend. Yeah. Um, Folks will notice you uh, and your voice because they hear your various podcasts and stuff. Uh, we're happy to platform and advertise those right here. You just did, um, th- this started out as a sermon and then you wrote a piece about it and then you were talking about it on your podcasting stuff too. Th- this is a big picture thing, but I think it gets to the heart of a lot of the politics. You're talking about a lack of hope that people have. Now, I could lay out a lot of charts here in a hurry how things have changed over the last, let's just take my lifetime, last 20, 30, 40 years. Church attendance is down. Civic organization participation is down. Cultural strife is up. Mm -hmm. Political discord is up. Those four things are connected. There's nobody that's going to convince me that those aren't connected. And it's not that everybody has to go to church, although, you know, we, we share a faith and that sort of thing. Civic organization, a church, something. You know, psychology talks about having that third place, not home and not work, that is part of your identity, that gives you, you know, a good tripod of support on who you are as a person. That sort of stuff gets to you talking about hope because I think as we see our politics get more and more out of hand, I think people are going to politics and culture for that third thing and it's not having good repercussions for our country. Is is that kind of where you're seeing this as well? Yeah, it is. I think one of the things that I've really been noticing a lot lately um, is a lack of hope. We, and, and that's different from optimism. You know, I think hope is a belief in really in a future that we can't see right now. But is but we believe that will happen, and you know I think there was a time, I think it's just been very American in our culture, 
to be a hopeful people. We believe that things can get better, that things will be better. Um, you have whole movements that were centered on hope. I think the civil rights movement was a belief in hope, um, hope that there was, there could be um, equality um, between blacks and whites and, and other groups. And the thing that I've noticed so much in our day-to-day -day thing today is that there isn't a, that sense of hope that things can get better. Um, there's a lot of what I would say is despair. Um, and, you know, there's been despair that I think we've talked about. If you think about the whole um, depths of despair that people have talked about, like Angus Deaton, I think that that is happening, especially among the working class. Um, but I think that, that that sense of despair is happening everywhere um, for different reasons, but it's it's there. It's a sense that things won't get better, things that, and it's kind of, and I think that then leads to cynicism. Um, and when we kind of make, as you've talked about, these lack of third place, or the lack of third places, and then trying to make things like politics and culture that third place, is that in some ways it's putting the cart before the horse. Um, because politics, I don't think, can by itself bring hope. And in fact, you can get so mired into politics that it, it becomes despair or cynicism. And it's about how you can prevent the other side from um, doing what they're doing. Then it is about how do we have hope that things can get better, that the other side also has something worth listening to and that we can work towards something that can create a better future. And I think that that has been, that is missing in our, in our American, especially American discourse. And I think that that has, to me, dire implications for our society. Yeah, Dennis Sanders joining us. You have a great point in here. Um, you quote some theologian on this, but this is such a good point because it says, and this is in his Substack. We're going to link to his Substack. Make sure you subscribe to that. I do. Um, instead of ex extrapolating the present, hope is about a future that has nothing to do with the present. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a quote from the piece and from the theologian Ruff. The problem is, politics and culture war is the exact opposite of that. It's all yep. about the present. It's taking yes, it the is. present and looking outward. This this is the definition of looking through the world through the wrong end of the telescope. It it blurs it. It distorts it. It makes things that are further away seem closer than they are and vice versa. When I read that quote, that's where I get into this thing with hope is like, no, your hope, you know, I don't want to get overly spiritual here, but there's a Bible verse for this, you know, faith, the things that are not seen, that thing beyond this present moment. Mm -hmm. we, we had a term in the military a lot. We talked about guys that are just ate up. Like they, they just can't see anything other than that thing right in front of them all the time, whether it's ambition or whatever, they're just ate up with it and they can't get past it. And there's so much of that in our politics. And I think it comes from this very concept right here is that, and you talked about hope just a minute ago, hope cannot be whatever the immediate issue is or whatever your immediate feeling or your immediate emotion or your immediate pain level or your immediate joy. Joy can take you down a bad path in a hurry too if you don't keep it in proper context. And that quote really hit it for me. It's like so much of what's wrong with politics is when you just lose that perspective of, no, 
you're just stuck in the moment and you can't get out of it. Yeah, I think it, th we have a problem with presentism. We are stuck in what is what we can see um, and not really in kind of what I would say is a transcend, because I think hope is transcendent. It, it's something beyond ourselves and it's beyond what is the present. And right now, I think both of our politics, whether that's liberal or conservative, is only stuck in the present moment. We can't see beyond that. And what happens, I think, when you can't see that there can be something better, that there can be, there's other ways to do things, is that you start to, well, see the other side, not necessarily as a, a fellow person, but as the enemy it's willingness to kind of do what you can to win at all costs. It doesn't matter, you know, whether whatever kind of things are constitutional or not. It, it just becomes this kind of winner-take-all game. And I think that that is something that in some ways is a little different for us as Americans because I think in the past we have always – been a hopeful people. I mean, we've always been an optimistic people, but I think we've also been very much a hopeful people that things could get better, that there is a better future out there that we can't necessarily see. I think that it's that hope that would allow people um, to immigrate from places um, and other parts of the world to come and, and to uh, be a part of America. And that is gone. And when you have that, it becomes our politics, I think, becomes a lot more rougher and meaner. Um, and as I say in the article, at least in, in the when I the added a, a new part to it, I think in some ways, the loss of hope um, on all sides is why we have people like Donald Trump, um, is that it's it's a it's a reflection of our culture and where we are right now. Sanders joining us. Let's go to your own background because, look, I come from West Virginia. That went blue dog to red Trump in a big old hurry. Mm -hmm. um, you're a Flint, Michigan. You, you've come from a good union family. You mm -hmm. know, my aunt would have said growing <laughs> up, right? Flint, Michigan, um, auto workers. You've seen it. Your family, your friends, those old union folks, those old blue collars, what used to be, you know, the core of of working class America and of the democratic party and politics, they're just gone. Yep. And the, and the next generation that came behind them are the ones that are older now and left. There's bitterness. There's, they don't understand why the world changed. We've seen, like, I don't condone it, but I get it. Like I see how the path got dark, but was, where's the line of blame there where you drove off? What part of it is this is environmental and what part of it is individualistic of, okay, you got to take some responsibility for even though these are in bad times. That's a big question. But if you're going to throw up the, well, why did Donald Trump turn the Rust Belt out? Mm 
and then the Rust Belt turned on him again and he lost. This is the stuff you got to talk about. It's not just the politics and the policies. People react mm-hmm. and they react with their vote. And you yeah, have to understand yeah. why they're reacting without trying to put a big broad brush on the reaction, because if they reacted to that, they're going to react to the next thing, too. Is that a fair way to lay it out beyond just the politics and the ideology of it? It is. I think it is. You know, I think part of the problem in our culture over the last, I would say, 30, 40 years or so, we have, there have been a lot of changes in American society, especially American culture, but in the American economy. And I think that we haven't always done a good job of helping people who are going through that change weather that change. And when people have to basically deal with all of these changes and they're dealing with kind of, you know, loss of job, um, loss of of economic opportunity, loss of other things that are happening, that has an impact on people. Um, and that is, you know, when those things are 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 pulled away, when when community crumbles, um, and when we have kind of people, and this is people are people on both parties that don't really address those changes. And don't basically want to deal with some of those things and instead just kind of focus only on the individual part. And I think the individual part is is a factor there, so I don't want to rule that out. But if we don't focus on that, or, or if we only focus on the individual part, but don't focus on how do we help people kind of weather the change, how do we help people maintain their hope, they're going to lose that hope. And what happens is when you lose that hope, then people look for people who basically are, are are cynical and will tell them, well, this is why it's happening. It's those people who are the problem, and I'm the one that can can help you, and I'm the one that tells the truth. That's how you get people like Trump. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Last week there was an... Um, and I'm actually writing on this now, uh, a, a very fascinating op-ed by David Brooks, um, where he really wonders and, and has questioned if those of us who are opposed to Trump are what he would say is the bad guys. And, and what he was trying to get at was that people in his class, and I guess probably I would say my own class, uh, have not paid attention to a lot of the cultural and economic changes that have happened. And, you know, they want to think that the reason people vote for Trump is just simply because they're, they're bigots. And he's saying, that's not all, that's not all of the, the reasons. And we need to pay attention to that. And when we don't pay attention to that, when people and people end up losing hope, and I think that, that is what causes things like the rise of Trump. And I think that that is what can put our democracy in danger. Um, Trump is the result of problems. He is not the problem itself. And that means that we have to look at what is causing this, what are causing people to make these decisions. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have any agency or that they don't have any blame but it does mean that we have to understand why this is happening. Because if we don't, then we're just going to end up in the same situation, if not worse. 
Yeah, Dennis Saunders joining us. I'm glad you brought up the Brooks thing because a lot of people gravitated to that, both for and against it. Mm -hmm. I agree with wide swaths of it. I don't think he's lying, but I think it fell short on a couple of things. And one of the mm -hmm. things that fell short was, and nothing against David Brooks personally, look, he's been a lightning rod for a long time because he's that guy. So, yep. just, you know, he, he's like Walmart. He's just kind of the big name out there. He's going to get all the slings. Where it falls short, though, is there were people telling the David Brookses of the world, hey, this is happening and you're mm -hmm. not paying attention to it. And they didn't listen. No. And I and then there's the other side of this that falls flat of, you know, and I, I don't want to rehash 40, 50 years of conservative agitprop here. But no, the hippies did not make the family unit fall apart. And no, like, no, that's that's there. There's a certain style I hate to use this word, but I don't have a better word for it. The elite commentary, and by elite, I don't just mean rich and famous. I mean the people that swim in those circles. Like, mm -hmm. I can put a shirt and tie on and go to the think tanks in D.C. and hang out at the panel and fit in for five minutes, but I feel weird and I want to get out of there. All right? I just do. I get imposter syndrome. Fast. The people that just do that all the time, it is a bubble. Mm -hmm. And you do have to do certain things to stay in that social strata. And it does have its own culture around it. And it insulates you from everything that else is happening. And I think where the David Brooks stuff falls short, and I, 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 I'm not going to ding him because I think he is trying to be honest and do reflection there. The problem is there were people telling you don't do this. And there were people telling you like, no, there's, there's this aggrieved people out here. But then at the same time, we got to turn around and go, well, you can't just reward grievance. And you can't no. just re reward reactionary. And I think we're the what the Brooks piece showed for folks that didn't read it, we will link to it. You still are just getting that same argument going again over the Brooks piece about, we shouldn't have had this argument to start with. And it just rekindles the same argument again, right? Because you can't pack grievance on the head. That's never going to work. But at the same time doing that and not doing it makes it worse. I don't have a good answer for that, Dennis. Do you? I don't have an easy answer. I think, Part of it is that we need to learn to listen to one another. I mean, I think a lot of it, you don't you don't want to reward grievance, but you also have to acknowledge it's there and that there are people that are upset, people that don't feel that they are part of what, you know, that they can make it in America anymore or that they feel left on the outside. I think we have to find ways of listening and and trying to reach out in various ways and it doesn't mean agreeing with everything that someone says but it does mean um trying to be more aware of what's going on and you kind of brought up a little bit about um conservatism and as someone on the center right one of the things that i've been in some ways frustrated about is that I think the center right as much doesn't also want to understand in a lot of ways why this happened. Why did the Republican Party all of a sudden just decide to follow someone like Trump? And it's, again, because I think a lot of people, especially in, in the Republican Party, didn't listen to the people. I, I think they had their ideas, they had their beliefs in how the economy, how society worked but they weren't seeing how people were living and then trying to respond to that. And that doesn't mean that they have to, you know, give up what 
they believe and become Democrats or something um, to answer these questions. But you have to at least ad admit that these questions exist. And I think too often we didn't. And what happened then is that people lost hope. Um, I mean, there's a reason that we've gone from a party uh, where you had someone like Ronald Reagan, who I think exuded hope, um, not just optimism, but I think hope, to someone like Donald Trump, who is not hopeful, who is very cynical and who is very dark. And um, that didn't happen by accident. It, it happened partially because people weren't paying attention. And it's people within the Republican Party, but it's also people in the wider culture, Democrats, all of that is when we only focus and when we live in a bubble, we shouldn't be shocked when people outside the bubble start to react and react in a bad way. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Dennis Saunders joining us. I forget who first wrote it. I'm going to crib it. So credit to whoever said this first, but um, conservatives and the and our progressive friends talk past each other on a lot of stuff where they'd probably agree if they just take a second. Mm -hmm. And somebody pointed it out that a lot of what's going on in the undercurrents is 
conservatives are right about government being bad and the progressives are right about culture and class having a lot to do with our problems and they won't talk to each other about it. So now we have a really big government with everybody fighting over culture, class and race. Mm -hmm. And that sure seems to be where we're kind of stuck at the moment. I, I, um, my, my friend Brent O'Rell put out a tweet the other day and he, he, he said, you know, and he's older now, he's, you know, 10 years older than us, give or take. And he's, he's like, I never thought we'd be dealing with racism and these things again, like we have been the last five years or so. And it's getting worse in a lot of ways and anti-Semitism and things like this. What do you ascribe that to? I know we've kind of been putting it on social media and culture and just like, Hey, we can see more of it They're, They have platforms now. That's part of it. What do you attribute this to? Because it does feel like it's getting worse. And it seems like there's too many people still head padding this mess instead of wanting to deal with it. What do you stick it to? Why does it seem like it's getting worse? Are we just seeing it more in social media or are people digging in on some really bad stuff that they shouldn't believe in? I think people are digging in on some bad stuff. It's tribalism. It's the sense that... Um, there is this side, there is that side, and I'm going to dig in on my side um, that we're no longer have kind of shared values in some ways that says that this is something that we believe is right or this is something we believe is wrong. Um, I also think it's a bit of a, a sense of, and I don't know, I hopefully this doesn't come off come across as a cheap shot, but I think for especially for people on the, the right, there have been for many years people that were progressives that were always calling every conservative for any reason a racist. Um, and I think for some some of them, they just decide, okay, well, if you're going to think I'm a racist, I'm just going to be that. And so I think that's part of the thing. Um, but I also think it's a sense of just not... I think that there's also been much more a sense of, of a permission culture now that there where in the past, you know, 20 years ago when, when I think Trent Lott said something that to this day, I don't know if he meant it, what the way he said it about um, Strom Thurmond or he was just being just, you know, stumbling over his words, but he basically lost his leadership because of something he said that sounded like in support of segregation we don't have that type of a culture anymore that you know you, you can judge whether that was an overreaction but i think the the belief was that that was wrong or something wasn't right about it and i think now i think we've become so entrenched in our beliefs and so tribal in our beliefs and so polarized that the our side either side doesn't want to admit that they could be wrong and they don't want to we want to uh, basically go after someone on their side that may have said something wrong. And so that has allowed things like racism, I think, to fester a lot more. Um, you know, especially on social media now, you just see a lot more misogyny and um, that I never saw before. Um, I just think that we have this this kind of culture and it kind of leads back to the whole thing of if you don't have hope, if you don't believe that there can be a better future for everyone, if you only see future um, as kind of this 
you know, either living in a bubble or seeing or kind of politics of resentment, it just becomes this kind of dog eat dog and it's a tribal thing and you end up with, you know, things like what we saw in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, where whites and blacks are just beating up on each other. Yeah, Dennis Sanders joining us. You know what I've tried to do is, you know, I <laughs> prejudice is a wide spectrum. Racism mm-hmm. is a really dark. Something's wrong with broken in your soul and we can't fix that sort of thing. So I, I try to be careful with my wording on things like that. Throwing around words like racist and bigot and things like mm-hmm. that. I, I try to be slow and cautious on it. But what I've come to do is I try to distill it this way and I just say, look, America, uniquely among the world, is a really big, pluralistic, diverse country, and it's getting more so. All you have to do is go read the last census. It's getting more diverse. You're either okay with that or you're not. And so much of this stuff, when I really get in a tough spot with, okay, I was like, is this person okay with having a big, pluralistic, diverse society where everybody has as much freedom as possible? That's now my standard that I apply. You're either okay with that or you're not. And it's going to happen whether those people like it or not that are against it. That's the standard now. It's like, are you okay with that? And I've gotten to where I just want to start blatantly asking people, like, are you okay with us having a diverse, pluralistic society? Because it's going to be whether you like it or not. So folks either got to adapt to that or you don't. And I think people are realizing this country is diversifying and the people that can't handle it are getting louder about it. And because I think it's setting in that, no, it's not that way. And I think a lot of folks, they're just starting to realize that their corner of the world isn't as big as they thought it was. But that's the standard I'm applying now. I'll give you the last thought on it. Yeah, I think that there is something to that. I I think, and I think, though, it brings up the other question, though, is how do we deal with that? Because I think too often what happens, though, is that we just kind of leave it at, well, you're a bigot, and that's it. And we don't want to have anything to do with you. So, and I don't think that that's helpful, um, especially if they are. This is a growing number of people out there. So, we can't kind of ignore them. We can't, as you said, pat them on the head. But I think we have to listen to them, and I think we have to find ways of helping them to understand what does it mean that America in some ways has always been a, a, a pluralistic society, more so than many other nations, and that they're going to be okay. That, you know, this is not going to be some kind of, you know, that their lives are in danger or something. Um, will that work? I don't know. But I think that we have to kind of we have to do more than simply kind of just say that people are bigots and shut them out. Um, because I think that approach isn't working, it hasn't worked. And I think it, it can it can kind of exacerbate the problem. Um, and again, I'm not certain how it will work. And um, will it change minds? I don't know. But maybe it's my sense of hope that I want to believe people can that people can change and people can change their minds because if we don't people can change their minds then we're just basically back to where we started living without hope yeah dennis saunders joining us i i think you give them one or two chances and then again i don't i don't know where the line is but 
if if people just refuse to to lay down the really nasty stuff, you just can't you just can't be around it anymore. No, you can't. So it, it's tough in the social media age, but look, social media people tell you a lot about themselves. We're just gonna have to start believing folks, I guess. Dennis Sanders joining us. We love having these kind of conversations with him. That's why we keep having him on. He does this all the time though. He writes about it, he talks about it, has podcasts. Has you have you have various branding of yourself? Walk us through it all for folks that, so they can find you and keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Sure, um, I do a podcast called Church in Maine, and that focuses on religion um, and 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 culture and politics. And you can find that at um, Church in Maine, all one word dot org, or uh, Church in Maine dot Substack dot com. Um, and then I also have another. Another substack that just deals with um, that where I put most of my writing, and that one is um, called um, um, Infinite Charity um, or Infinite Diversity and Infinite Charity, and you can find that at Infinite Charity on one word dot substack dot com, um, and so you can find me at both of those places, uh, read my writings, and kind of follow from there. Yeah, we're going to link to both of them. Make sure you subscribe to his stuff. I do. I appreciate him. Dennis Saunders, we'll have you back real soon, my friend. Take care. All right. Take care. See ya. Thank you, sir. back to herd tell let's end on a good note i love this story so much it's from the washington post it's from a week or two ago sydney page wrote this but um i, I just love this because this crosses a lot of streams shane porter reading from the washington post knew he was dying of cancer when one day he came home with a rusty 1969 jeepster commando that had no seats and a shoddy engine he purchased the battered vehicle in 2016 as a family project to work on with his wife and their sons michael and tim now 24 and 22 it's intended to be a bonding activity. He knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, said Tigger Porter, who'd met her husband when she was 14, he was 15. He thought, you know what? I want good memories. I want to do this. The family took on the project and tinkered away on the Jeepster until Shane Porter died January 22, at age 57, after a lengthy battle with bladder cancer and lymphoma. Up until the month he passed away, he was in the garage working on the Jeep, Tigger Porter said of her husband who worked for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Prevention for 30 years and was a fire captain. After Shane Porter's death, his family let the Jeepster languish in the garage. The partially done project was too difficult to pick back up, a painful reminder of the task she and her sons couldn't bring themselves to complete. We couldn't do it. Although the Porter family couldn't fathom finishing the project, they also couldn't imagine getting rid of the barely functioning vehicle. It had sentimental value, Tigger said. I get teary-eyed every time I just go around it. So it sat there until last May when Bob Magger, the longtime friend of the family, took note of it one day when he was visiting. Magger is the automotive technology teacher at Corona High School in Corona, California. When he saw the time-worn Jeep, he had a light bulb. This would be a great project for my students to complete, he recalled. He pitched the idea to the advanced class, which included junior and senior students. They were enthusiastically on board. They were like, we have to do this for this family. Porter and her sons were delighted. It was going to help the kids learn, which is what my husband was all about, said Tigger, who graduated from Corona High School herself in 1984. In their automotive class, 
Students are taught basic maintenance and light repairs, including how to fix brakes and do oil changes, as well as complete external restorations. They regularly work on teachers' and parents' vehicles. We do work for the community members and parents of the students that can't afford to have their brakes done, said Malger, adding that nearly 60% of the students at the high school come from economically disadvantaged homes. Car owners are expected to cover the cost of any needed parts, but the students work for free. In addition to acquiring the skills, the kids learn how to give back, said Malger. They're just learning how to fix their own car, but learning how to be a good human, and that's what the world needs. Repairing the Porter's family vehicle is the class's most significant project because of the meaning behind it and also proved more complicated than they anticipated. It was a project I knew was going to be a lot of work, but it's not just a car, said Judah Castillo, 17. It was very meaningful. There's a lot of pictures of this, by the way. We'll link to it. It'll be on the Substack notes, hertel.substack.com. Back to the piece. It was running. Engine parts were missing. The cooling system wasn't functioning. It was a mess. We noticed there was some structural issues, Maurer said. It took 15 months to address all the problems. And many of the students spent their free time after school and during summer months to get it done. Some even continued contributing to the project after they graduated. They rebuilt the engine, fixed the electrical, revived the cooling system, sealed the transmission and transfer case, and repaired all the rust. They were so dedicated, Malger said. I'm super proud of my students. Malger's advanced automotive class partnered with other classes at school, including the metal shop class, to polish off the final product. About 22 students in total worked on the Jeepster. There was so much collaboration, he said, adding the school offers robust trade programs, including an aviation lab, a wood shop, and other courses that teach technical skills. This is something we've been harping on on this program. We need to get this vocational training back into our schools in a meaningful way. God bless this stuff. Look at how good this was. Finishing the piece. After restoring the car, students repainted it. By the time they were done, it was gleaming. More importantly, though, it functioned properly. The main goal was to make it drivable and safe said Malger, who paid for many of the new car parts out of his own pocket. The repairs cost almost $600 total. The labor, of course, was free. While there were several obstacles, Shane was with us the whole town, Margaret said. I think you'd be thankful to see we were able to give this gift to his boys and his wife. The students presented the revived Jeepster to the Porter family July 27th. The Pim Porter, who enlisted in the Army and left for boot camp Tuesday, was there in person, and his brother, Michael Porter, is in the Air Force and watched from the FaceTime from Nebraska. Everyone was crying, Margaret said. It was just a room full of tears. I know they'll have that car for a long time, Castillo says. It feels rewarding to see our work paid off. Porter and her sons were grateful for the students' long-term commitment. They have no idea who they were, but they did it, Tigger said. It was truly a work of love. Driving the car is, quote, like no other feeling I can ever describe, Tigger added. I get to reminisce about my boys and Shane and the things we used to do. Malgar said his goal for the car to be a celebration of Shane Porter's life rather than a symbol of loss. Quote, it's something that family can enjoy and have dad with them. Shane will always be there. I love this story. Students making good, a family working through grief, and skill sets, not just on the automotive, but in life that will carry them through for a long, long time and made everybody better. Let's have a lot more of that, shall we? And that's why we'll continue to highlight stories like that here on Herd Tell. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. However you're listening or watching on the YouTube channel, please do us a favor. Make sure you share, like, subscribe, whatever the current platform you're on is. That helps us keep track of where you are. We can keep getting you what you need, and it gets, lets us be responsive 
to how folks are listening and watching and consuming and sharing the program. We sure appreciate it. We don't advertise other than our own social media. So it only costs you a click to listen and costs you two clicks. If you'd share it with somebody, we'd sure appreciate that. Put it on your Facebook, put it on your social media, whatever you use. That'd be great. iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all those are great partners with us. Make sure you're subscribed to all of them. The YouTube channel has the video content from the good talks. Those are the interviews we do. If you want to watch it in video, It'll be available on the YouTube channel. And also, as always, everything we do, writing, media, Herd Tell episodes, back episodes, archival stuff's on the Substack, herdtell.substack.com. It is a free subscription. Gets it right into your inbox anytime we do something. So until we see and hear or talk to you again, wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.